Well, it's a joy to get to be with you today. And I was sitting up here and I was thinking about uh, James sitting next to me, an armed police officer, campus security. And I thought to myself, there are one of two things that people are probably thinking here today. Number one, our speaker is that important and his life is that valuable that he travels with an armed guard wherever he goes, even sitting on the platform. Or number two, Dr. Patterson does not trust me and so he has attached a security detail uh, <laughs> to, to make sure that I don't do anything I shouldn't do. So you can figure out which it is. I'm just grateful that he remembered my name. The big joke in our family is that uh, Dr. Patterson, I don't think it has any, anything to do with old age at all. Uh, he has done this from the very inception. Uh, he tends to forget family members. And so he'll say, I just love so much my granddaughter. And he'll look at her and go, uh, uh. And Mrs. Patterson will say, Abigail. And he'll say, oh yes, that's right. So we have a lot of fun. So every time he introduces me to speak, I'm just grateful that he knows my name. And, uh, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you today. I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I want you to find your way to verse 1. In just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 10. Though we're going to be referring to the entire chapter this morning. So you'll want to keep your Bibles open. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and find your way to verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10. Here's what the scripture says. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments." When my wife and I celebrated our 10th anniversary, I decided that we would do something special, and so I researched the various places to go and things to do, and we decided to make a trip to Hawaii. We stayed at a very nice place, at least the best place that we could afford it, after all, was our 10th anniversary. 
and we were going to have the best time. We were just going to enjoy uh, those 10 years together and reflect back on all the things that God did in our marriage and was doing in our marriage at the present day. And so we were just going to have a good time. No uh, expenses we were going to spare. We were expenses we were going to, uh, to spare. We were going just to have a good time. And so when I arrived at the, uh, the hotel and we pulled up, the valet parkers came to the car and they wanted to park the car. But you see, I'm smarter than they are because I realized two things. When you valet park, you're going to be paying money for something you can simply do yourself. And not only that, every time you get your car, they're going to want a tip. And so it will cost you money that I felt like was uh, money I did not need to spend. And after all, my wife, she's 10th anniversary, she's young and she has energy and she can carry her suitcases 300 yards across a parking lot in several fields from the self-park area. And so we parked our car and we carried our luggage and we had a great time on that vacation. Every time we pulled up to the hotel, the valet parkers would come and they'd say, sir, are you sure that you don't want us to park the car? And I thought to myself, of course not. I'm not going to pay you the $30 a night. I'm not going to give you the tip. You're just trying to get in my pocket. I'm not going to do that. On the last day, as we were preparing to walk to our car in the self-park area, the man looked at me and I guess he probably experienced a little bit over that time how cheap I really was. And he said, sir, I, I, I would love to tell you this if you would listen to me for just a moment. I said, all right, what is it? I know you want me to park my car. We're getting ready to leave. You're not going to do it. I'm smarter than you. I'm not going to pay the $30, and I'm not going to tip you. He said, sir, when you stay at this hotel, valet parking is complimentary. <laughs> now, you ever have that feeling that the love that your wife had for you when you first got married was not the same love that she experienced at that moment. I looked over and my wife has her arms crossed and she's shaking her head, thinking about all of those days that we had to walk through that parking lot and all of the luggage that we had to carry because her husband was too cheap to pay for valet parking. And on top of that, he didn't have to pay in the first place. He didn't read the details of the contract when he signed up. When King Saul ascended to the throne, God gave him a very simple contract. In fact, the contract that God gave to King Saul is found in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14 and 15. Uh, the details of that contract are very simple. Here's what he says. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, it will be well with you. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel, rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. From the very beginning, as Saul ascended to the throne, God made the contract clear. He gave him the details. And the details were twofold. Number one, you are ascending to a throne that doesn't belong to you. If you fear the Lord, it will be well with you. Number two, your responsibility is to obey me and speak the words that I command you. The throne doesn't belong to you and the message doesn't belong to you. Don't miss those details. Fear the Lord and obey the Lord and things will be well with you. Before we get much further into the text and we begin to look at the details and 
we begin to uncover what seems to go wrong with Saul in this text, I think it's important to note something for all of us today. The same principle applies to us today. God may place you in a pulpit. He may put you in a classroom. He may send you to the mission field. But the day that you forget who put you there and why he put you there is the day that your ministry is in trouble. God didn't call you so that he could bless you. The ministry is not about you at all. God called you so that you can be a blessing to him. And the same commandment that God gave to Saul as Saul ascended to be the king over Israel is the same commandment that God gives to us. You do not own your pulpit, you do not control your ministry, and you do not make up the message. Now as we read chapter 15, we realize that something is not right. In fact, no less than five times in chapter 15 do we read that there's a problem with Saul. For example, I want you to notice in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following my commandments. Look down at verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Look over at verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you. Look at verse 26. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. And then look down at verse 35. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Now whether Saul had forgotten what God had called him to do, or whether he purposefully decided in his own heart that he was not going to obey the Lord, the inescapable conclusion of chapter 15 is that Saul is in big trouble. Now let's go back for a moment and see if we can understand what's happening in this text. Remember when Israel came into the promised land and they were passing through the wilderness at a place called Rephidim? The Amalekites attacked them. They had just crossed the Red Sea. They had been traveling in the wilderness. They were thirsty. There were stragglers in the crowd. And the Amalekites did the most heinous thing possible. They attacked the Israelites from the rear, the weakest, the helpless, and they began methodically to pick off the Israelites as they were traveling through the wilderness. God, in his sovereignty, raises up a military leader by the name of Joshua. And through God's providence and God's guidance, Joshua defeats the Amalekites. Remember, that's when Moses held his hand up, and as he held the staff up, they prevailed, and as, as the staff was lowered, they would lose. And so Aaron and Hur come, and they prop him up, and they hold his hands up, and God gives them victory at Rephidim. We find that in Exodus chapter 17. And yet, God never forgot that. In fact, in Exodus chapter 17, God says, because of what you have done to the Amalekites, I am going to wipe you out. And then Moses, at the end of his life, recounts what God's promise was concerning the Amalekites. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off at your rear from all who lagged behind you, and he did not fear God. 
Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God gives you for inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven and you shall not forget. God never forgot what the Amalekites did to the Israelites. And so now the Israelites have a king and his name is Saul. And his job description is simple, fear me, Sit on the throne, but recognize it's not yours. Obey me and serve me. You do what I command you to do. And God tells Saul through the prophet Samuel, it is time to carry out the order to annihilate the Amalekites. And so Saul is given that divine responsibility. We read about that in chapter 15, verses 1 through Three. And Saul is told that when you attack the Amalekites, wipe them out completely. Spare no person, no man, no woman, no child, no infant, no ox, no sheep, no camel, no donkey. By the way, this is a picture of how seriously God takes sin. That's why in the New Testament, the Bible says, put to death your earthly members. Slay them. If you don't slay sin in your life, if you don't deal with that hidden sin in your life, it will attack you when you least expect it. So Saul summoned his army, and they go out, and they attack the Amalekites. And yet in verse 8, Saul didn't obey the word of the Lord. Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And then Saul spared Agag and the best of the sheep, verse 9, and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Saul didn't do what God commanded him to do. He rejected the commandment of God. And as we have seen, in rejecting the commandment of God, God rejects him. Now the question we ought to ask is why did Saul reject God? And take it to another level, why did God reject him? Well, there are several answers that we will discover in the text. One is explicit, that is Saul explains to Samuel and to the Lord why he didn't obey him. Two are implicit. They're not explicitly stated, but as you read and understand the text, they're implicitly applied. Notice, first of all, that he craved human applause more than he feared divine consequences. Remember that Samuel asks him the question in verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? And why did you do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul, I need to know, why didn't you carry out the commandment of God that God gave you so explicitly? Why didn't you do it? Verse 24, Saul answers Samuel and says, yes, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, and here it is, explicitly stated, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's interesting in light of the job description that God gave Saul. God never told Saul that he should fear the people and obey their voice. 
Remember, God's job description for Saul was very simple. Saul, here's the throne. You fear me. As long as you fear me, you sit on the throne, and you obey me, and you serve me, and you carry out my commands. He even repeats that, Samuel does to Saul in chapter 15, verse 17 and 18. He says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. And here's what the Lord said. He said, go. Interesting, though, isn't it, that Saul did not do what God told him to do. And by his own admission, Saul says that I was craving the applause of people more than I feared the consequences of disobeying God. Beloved, you know the Bible is not silent about how God thinks about man-pleasers, about people-pleasers. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, here's what Paul says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Paul repeats that to the Colossians. Bondservants, obey your masters in everything, if not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. God has made it so clear in all of our ministries who it is that we ought to seek to please, and never are we ever commanded to seek the praise of men or to seek to please men. Richard Baxter said, a people pleaser will have as many masters as he has beholders. Puritan Thomas Boston said, consider that the applause of the world is nothing worth. It is hard to be gotten for readily the applause of the unlearned is given to him whom the learned despise. And the learned applaud him whom the common people care not for. And when it is received, what have you? A vain, empty puff of wind. They think much of thee, thou think much of yourself, and in the meantime, God thinks nothing of thee. There will come a point in your ministry where you will have to acknowledge, and it will be acknowledged where your loyalty really lies. That day is coming if it has not already arrived. Some of you are here and you're rightly so in your preaching class. You're hearing that we ought to preach through books of the Bible. And I will tell you there is no better way to preach than verse by verse, book by book. What better way than to say what God says in the exact way that God says it. Amen? I know that's what you're being taught. And if you're not doing it, I'll pray that God will forgive you. 
But as you learn to preach through books of the Bible, you're going to go into your first pastorate and you're going to say, I'm going to preach through a book of the Bible and you're going to start off with a bang because you're just going to get so excited. But then you're going to be in your study and you're going to start looking ahead. And you're going to realize that when you chose that particular book, there's some topics in that particular book that are a little touchy and that might cause your ministry to be a little rocky because you're going to have to say some things that are a little controversial. And you would rather not touch those things, but because you came to Southwestern Seminary and you know you have to preach through books of the Bible, you are now staring at a passage that you wouldn't have chosen had you not chosen to preach through a book of the Bible. So you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to preach that text or am I not? It's going to be a time in your ministry when you have a young couple and they're going to come and tell you how much they love you and how much they love your preaching and how much they think you're the greatest gift to their church. And then they're going to ask you to marry them and you're going to sit down with them and you're going to discuss the background of their lives and you're going to realize very quickly that they're going to be unequally yoked and you can't do their wedding. You can't bless that wedding because it doesn't bless God and it's not what God expressly allows in his word and so then you'll tell them you can't do their wedding and they're going to tell you if you don't do our wedding we don't think you're the greatest pastor anymore we don't think your sermons are that good anymore and we think other churches are better and we're going to go somewhere else and on the way out we're going to tell everybody and then you realize that that young couple's parents are some prominent members in your church you're going to come to a place in your ministry where you are going to have to lay the cards on the table and demonstrate where your loyalty really is and as difficult as that may be now, it will pale in comparison if you compromise to the day that you stand before God and give an account why you chose not to obey him and obeyed people instead. John Stott says concerning this, on one hand, this is a disconcerting fact because God scrutinizes our hearts and their secrets and his standards are very high. On the other hand, it is marvelously liberating since God is a more knowledgeable, impartial, and merciful judge than any human being or ecclesiastical court or committee. To be accountable to him is to be delivered from the tyranny of human criticism. So Saul, why did you disobey the Lord? Well, Samuel, to be honest, I did what the people wanted me to do. I feared them. And I didn't fear God. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to please. I wanted to be known among the people as, as somebody that, that they, they could appreciate because I did what they asked me to do. Sounds a little bit like Matthew chapter 6, doesn't it? Jesus said, hey, listen, when you pray, don't stand on a corner. When you give, don't blow the trumpet. When you fast, don't look gloomy. In other words, when you do what you do, you don't do it for the praise of people. You don't give to be praised. You don't pray to be heard. You don't fast to be noticed. When you seek to please people, you may get what you want, but you will forfeit what you really need. Jesus said, if you do those things to please others, you have your reward. When you do them to please me, your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't get what you want and forfeit what you really need in your ministry. There's an explicit statement. That's what Saul says. This is why I disobeyed, because I feared the people. 
But there are some implicit reasons that Saul rejected the Lord and the Lord rejected him. And the second is that he attempted to disguise his personal ambition by pretending to have spiritual motives. I want you to look at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Saul, and Saul, uh, the word of the Lord rather came to Samuel, and Samuel said, I regret that I have made Saul, for he has uh, made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night, and he rose up early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel that Saul came to Carmel, and behold, set up a monument for himself, and turned and crossed and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? In other words, Samuel says, If you perform the commandment of the Lord, why are the sheep and the oxen still alive? What did you do, Saul? And Saul said, well, the people have brought from the Amalekites the best of the sheep and the oxen, now watch this, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Oh, but all the bad stuff we devoted to destruction. Are you catching this? Look, look at verse 15 for just a moment. He says, we brought these things so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. Same thing is said in verse 21. The people took the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice them to the Lord. This sounds noble, doesn't it? I mean, after all, we didn't kill all the sheep and the oxen because we needed some sacrificial animals so that we could bring them and sacrifice them to the Lord. But verse 19 gives us the real picture. Oh, you might miss it if you didn't really pay attention to what you're reading. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Watch this. Samuel says, why did you, ready, pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Why did you pounce on it? It's the same word used over in chapter 14, verse 32, when the people pounced on the spoil of the Philistines. The idea here is like a bird of prey swooping in, looking for some good spoil that they can nourish themselves with. You see, the answer here is that they did not delight in the sacrifice, but rather in the eating of the meat. They were more excited about a steak dinner than they were about sacrificing to the Lord. But you can't say that because after all, it doesn't sound right. So you needed to disguise your personal ambition by assigning spiritual motives. This raises a question, doesn't it? Do I really love God? Or do I love all the perks that come with loving God? How different this is from David who will follow. In Psalm 37, verse 4, David says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let me paint a picture for you. So the Israelites have the spoils of the Amalekites. They have the oxen, they have the sheep. They fulfilled part of what God commanded them. And so they paint over their, their ambition and their greed and their desire 
with a, a veneer of spirituality. On the outside, everything looks good, but on the inside, God is not pleased and God is not impressed. We know that. Look at verse 22. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So it all looks good, right? I mean, they partially obeyed, but they're living with a false sense of security. Beloved, this is what partial obedience always does. It gives you a false sense of security. Partial obedience is not acceptable to God. A couple of months ago, Went to bed at night. We have two Labrador retrievers. You say, why do you have two? In a weak moment, I agreed to get another one. That's all I'm gonna tell you. Amos and Obadiah, we're working our way through the minor prophets. And uh, so we let the dogs out. We put the dogs in bed. We turn out the lights. I lock the doors. I make sure everything's secure in the house. The firearm is near the bed. It was a requirement when I married into the Patterson family. And, 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 and so we're all secure, and I go to bed, and I, I, I wake up the next morning, and I walk out, and I go out into the driveway. I go for my morning jog, and I look, and the garage door was left open all night. In my garage are my cars, and in my cars are the car keys. I know you're saying you shouldn't do that. I know. And I just told you now, so now you have an inside information. And, and uh, there's a lot of other stuff. And my garage door into my house isn't locked. And so I went to bed and I thought everything was great. And I slept like a baby, but I shouldn't have because I failed to secure the house. We say, God, you know what? I, I did a little bit of what you asked me to do. And God, I, I fulfilled a little bit of your commandment, but I didn't fill it all. And God says to obey is better than sacrifice. You know what happens? The fanfare of the coronation of Saul that takes place in chapter 9 and 10 and 11 is instantly erased. All of the pomp and circumstance of Saul taking the throne is erased in an instant because, verse 23, you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Very quickly, there's a third implicit reason in the text why Saul disobeyed the Lord and God rejected him, and that is number three. He claimed to exalt God's glory when, in fact, he was intoxicated with his own. You think Saul wasn't intoxicated with his own glory? Look at verse 13 for a moment. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. Oh, listen, he throws a little spiritual, spiritual talk in there. Hey, God's glory, buddy. It's all about his glory. Blessed be you to the Lord. Look at verse 20, the same thing. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission that God has sent me. And yet, when you look at verse 8, you begin to realize quickly that the reason that Saul didn't kill King Agag and kept him and the reason that Saul didn't kill the sheep and the oxen and kept them is because Saul was more interested in himself. Verse 12 says that he built a monument to himself. Why do you keep King Agag when God says kill him? Because I can parade him around like a trophy. 
Hey, I pleased you because I said and did what you wanted me to do, he could say to the people. And oh, by the way, I'm a pretty good king. Here's Agag. And if you forget how great of a king I am, then just look at him. Hey, blessed be the Lord, Saul says. Oh, it sounds good. He's all about God's glory, except for the fact that he's intoxicated with his own. Saul pursued making a name for himself instead of making a name for God. The self-intoxication slope is slippery. And there are a lot of egos in ministry. Are you more interested in making your name great or are you more interested in making God's name great? Some of you came to Southwestern Seminary to get a degree. My prayer is that you'll get that degree, but my prayer is also that you'll get over yourself. Because until the day that you get over yourself, God is never going to be able to use you. God does not build his ministry or do his work on the shoulders of those who have egos. So Saul, five times, why did you reject me? I reject you. Why did you disobey me? You've lost the throne. The job description was simple. You don't own the throne, fear me. You don't control the message, obey me. And Saul rejected the Lord, and the Lord rejected him. I remember a number of years ago when I was in school, Dr. Patterson said I was an athlete, and I was, and I didn't pay much attention to uh, academic matters until actually, being totally honest, I had asked Dr. Patterson if I could marry Carmen. And so he said, son, let me ask you a few questions. He doesn't tell all the details. Dr. Patterson selectively tells things. And so he said, son, let me ask you a question. What, what class are you taking in seminary? And I said, Dr. Patterson, I'm taking church history. He said, oh, wonderful. And whenever he says, oh, wonderful, and he gets that coy look like he has right now, you're in trouble. If, you, if you're a student and he is on your PhD committee, I pray for you. I pray for you. Because if you answer a question that he asks, it makes him angry. And he's going to ask a question that you do not know the answer to. So if you answer, and it's better just to say, I don't know, it's much easier that way. So I said, I'm taking church history. He goes, wonderful. What's the significance of the date, 325 AD? I said, oh, it's the Council of Nicaea. And I start to explain, and he says, forget it. So he moves on to something else, you know? <laughs> and so I realized very quickly if I was going to be in the family that I better get serious about school because dinner conversations are gonna be on a different level than they were in my family. You know, we were talking about the latest episode of Archie Bunker or All in the Family or whatever, whatever it's called. But anyway, and so when I was in school, I didn't pay much attention to school, and, uh, but I did sit next to people who did. See, I was at least somewhat smart. So when I was in school, I sat next to a girl named Sherry Alexa. She was the smartest girl in school. And we were in math class, and the professor wrote a, a division equation on the board. Now, this may have been like third grade, okay? And so he wrote the problem on the board, and he said, whoever can answer the problem and get it correct, you're going to get 50 cents, and you can buy an ice cream in the cafeteria at lunch. Well, listen, I was all in for that. Except I didn't know how to do the problem, which was a problem. 
and it still is. But anyway, I was trying to uh, figure out how to do it, and I will. I am not advocating this, and I have repented. And uh, I, I, I glanced over at Sherry Alexa, and I noticed that she had the answer uh, written, and she was ready to get up and go show it to the professor. And I used my football skills, and I just kind of pushed her out of the way, and I ran up there. That's a joke. I did not do that. And I ran up there and I gave it to him and he said, correct. And I was like, yes, 50 cents, you know, ice cream. And everybody in class thinks I'm smart. And then the professor looked at me and he said, Mr. Howell, that is the correct answer. And to demonstrate to the class how you arrived at that correct answer, will you go to the blackboard and show everybody how you did that? I was without excuse. One day you're going to stand before God. God is going to say to you, why do you do what you do? Why are you more interested in your agenda than mine? Why are you so intoxicated with your own ego? What everybody else thinks about you? I think of the words that Paul quoted to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It is not he who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. What's more important to you? It's not your ministry, it's not your pulpit, it's not your classroom, it's not your mission field. But God graciously invites us to participate with him. But we have to do it according to his rules. Father, I pray today that he who has ears will hear what you say in your word. I pray, Father, that we would be men and women who are sold out for the applause of heaven, not the approval of earth. Give us a passion and a love for you that exceeds the good things that you give to us. Lord, we're thankful for the good things and we're thankful for the, the experiences in life and we're thankful for the blessings. But Father, I pray, and this is so hard to pray, I pray, Father, that you don't bless me, but that I would be a blessing to you. To know when I'm a blessing to you, I'm blessed is enough. I pray that for these brothers and sisters today. In Jesus' name. Amen.